So open uh, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. There's a couple of things that we need to understand. We'll, we'll get to Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 in just a minute. But first, I want to go backwards. I want you to, to turn one page over, if you actually have to turn, I don't know, uh, to Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul here in Ephesians chapter 3 is essentially telling the story of the purpose of the church. And he, he talks about how he was a very least of all the saints and he was given grace to preach to the Gentiles. But look what he says in verse 10. Because I'm not sure if you know this, but we are at war. We are at war. Make no mistake about it. A war that our physical eyes have absolute trouble seeing, but that in the spiritual realm is actually presently actively happening. Whether you're engaged or not, your lack of engagement will lead to your downfall, but your standing will lead to your victory because it's assured. Listen to what Paul says. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might, be, <clears throat> might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He already introduced these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places when he talked about how we are raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places above all rule and authority. Seated carries with it this understanding that we're in control. That God's on the throne, he's powerful, he's sovereign. And so he's reminding people, this is the purpose of the church. That God's manifold wisdom through us will be put on display by stepping on the throat of Satan. Amen. He said, this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, and according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to understand, or sorry, grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, and here it is, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So we're at war, and you may ask, what for? We are at war to make the love of God known and experienced to humanity. That is your purpose. If you're wondering, what is spiritual warfare all about? Is it just about me being a better person and tidying up those bad habits that I have? Forget it. It's bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. It's the four-dimensional love of God that Paul talks about here in Ephesians 3 that's on display. That's what the church is supposed to push forward in spiritual warfare. The problem oftentimes is we totally underestimate our enemy. Or maybe better yet, we don't even understand our enemy. And so this morning we're going to see how some pieces of armor that God gives were actually things that Jesus has worn. You can see this in Isaiah 59, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 52, where it talks about the breastplate and the helmet and the belt and the sword and feet ready with the gospel. These were things that were originally Jesus' armor, and now he's giving them to us. And he's saying, put these on. So Paul completes that imagery. 
So if you haven't guessed yet, the armor of God is our topic today, and we're going to be focusing on three critical concerns. Who's the enemy? In verses 10 through 13. Then we're going to look at the armor. That'll be the longest part of the message, where we kind of go piece by piece straight through it. And then finally, what role does community play? You see, spiritual battles require spiritual armor, and it's supplied by God for victory. If this was merely just a physical battle, we could have forged everything on our own, right? Like we've made tanks, we've made swords, we've made things like this that are for physical battle, but we're not in a physical fight. And so we have to understand the spiritual armor. So the first thing first, we're going to dive right in, verses 10 through 13, looking at the enemy. I'm just going to do a brief sketch of the enemy and his schemes. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Where are we seated? Say it. We're seated in heavenly places, right? So this battle is taking place around us, but we are seated as though the authority belongs to us in Christ. Taking up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul is eminently concerned that you stand up, that you not back down, that you not cower, that you not be fearful. But the issue is, we need to understand our enemy. We were watching a real live situation play out in Russia and Ukraine in which there are some assumptions about the enemy, and it's really biting the other person in the tail. And this is true in our world as well. This is true in the spiritual domain as well. Many of us are like, oh, Satan, whatever, he's a defeated enemy. Yeah, he's also a really ticked off defeated enemy. You can look at uh, Revelation chapter 12. And look what, look what John says here in verse 9. He's describing, understand this, in, John, or in Revelation 12, verse 9, John is describing a past event and a current reality. He says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So when Paul's talking about rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, he has in mind Satan and the angels who rebelled against God before creation. That is a spiritual battle that you need spiritual eyes to see. But it goes on, and we'll get back to verses 10 and 11, but look what it says in verse 12. Revelation 12, 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Again, that's us. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. The devil's angry at you because he knows that his time is short. So our enemy understands that he has very limited time, very limited resources, and already a certain defeat. He is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Paul says in Ephesians 2. You see, when Paul says the present darkness, 
You have to understand that's what you've been delivered from. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So consider this. Here's the enemy. First and foremost, he is aiming to drag you back to what you've been delivered from. Because it's familiar. Because it's easy. Because it's normal. I love the way John Mark Comer describes spiritual warfare. He says this, It's deceptive ideas, obviously influenced by the demonic, that play to disordered desires which are normalized in sinful society. You're like, what do you mean? Have you ever seen an ad that didn't tell you you deserved it? Have you ever looked at a vacation that you went to purchase and found out that it was actually your right? Right? And it's normalized. Maybe one layer deeper. Have you ever thought that, man, kids are an inconvenience, so therefore I should have autonomy over my body and can abort a child? Seriously. But it's normalized in sinful society. That's how the enemy works. When it says schemes, we have to understand that these are specific plans designed individually. Temptation, accusation, intimidation, division. But here it is. Satan's primary strategy are lies and deception. You wonder why the truth is something that the church is founded on. You wonder why Jesus Christ in Ephesians 4.21 is talked about as the truth is in Jesus, right? He's talking about in Romans 13.14, putting on Jesus. The whole concept here is that you're putting on truth like a cloak because the primary weaponry of the enemy are lies and deceptions. And the best lies are mostly true. Have you ever noticed that? The best lies are mostly true. They are the ones that carry with them all. It's like it sounds so sweet and so wonderful and everything. But there's like one little part. You're like, well, give me an example, Doug. Talk to Eve. Remember? Did God really say you can't do this? Well, I I mean, it sounds plausible, right? The best lies are mostly true. And this is what the enemy traffics in. And his lies are against the character and nature of God and your identity. That's one of the reasons why in your bulletin you have a little bookmark there on cardstock that walks through different things that are true about who you are in Jesus Christ. I want you to take that, toss it in your Bible. If you use an electronic Bible, sorry. (laughs) Maybe stick it on your nightstand. But use it as a bookmark. And here's why. One author says it this way. No person can consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with the way he perceives himself. I'm forgiven, redeemed, adopted, loved, chosen, blessed, right? Um, What if I don't think that way? What if I think I'm garbage? What if I think that I'm no good? What if I think that I'm, un- I'm unlovable? What if I think that I'm not worth pursuing? Guess what Satan does? Capitalize, capitalize, capitalize. Lies and deception. You're right, you're no good. Remember when you were dating and you slept with your girlfriend? That was no good, right? So that's going to be something that's going to haunt you for the rest of... 
Remember that? The, mo the, the best lies are mostly true, and this is our enemy. So I don't want to get into much of, of what he's talking about here other than just to understand our enemy because we underestimate him. You're like, how do we underestimate it? Maybe it's best illustrated with a story. In 2007, the summer of 2007, it was my first like full church camp as, as youth pastor. Um, Josh Flutter had been there uh, in 2006, and he kind of held my hand. He was so nice. And then uh, by 2007, I was fully running the youth group and, and took all these students over to Huntington College for, um, for our, our time at camp, which was awesome. And it's always been fun. Very exhausting, but fun. <clears throat> and every night we have teen sing, which is where people stay up way too late and sing worship for far, uh, for many hours into the night. And it's awesome. And, but, but it takes forever to set up. And so there's this huge room at Huntington College where all the kids are, are getting things ready and I'm making sure the PowerPoint and all that stuff is ready. And then all the students gather. So there's like 180 students or so kind of gathered outside this room. And um, it, Isaac Imig was a student of mine. I love Isaac. If you guys are in chemistry, sorry. But uh, he's a hard teacher, but a good one, okay? And so I remember Isaac couldn't have been more than 120 pounds dripping wet, and, and I'm standing next to him, and I kind of give him a little nudge, and I'm like, you want to go? And he's like, he just, you know, like hands in his pockets. Oh, oh I don't think you want to do that. And I'm like, oh, come on, you know, just kind of jar him a little bit. And, and then uh, I push him like one more time, and Isaac's a wrestler, a good one. And I, I think in, in everybody watching, in like three seconds, my nose was on the ground, my leg was behind my head, and I had like a rug burn on my forehead. And he's just holding me. I'm like, come on, what, what is this all about? This is how we underestimate our enemy. We think because he is a defeated individual, he can't still wield some level of control or some level of pain. Now, I easily use my authority like, okay, dude, like, let me go because this looks bad, right? But, but in reality, I totally underestimated him and overestimated me. And that's, what's ha that's what happens when we talk about the enemy. John 8, actually talks about this, where Jesus is saying to uh, the Pharisees that you are of your father, the devil. That's a pretty big claim. And then at the very end of the verse, he says, he is the father of lies. When he speaks lies, he speaks out of his own character. Wow. So the nature of our enemy is deceit. Truth to life, then, we have an enemy who comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. There's nothing loving in him. And you may be wondering, well, how do we defend against this? And that's where we turn our attention next. We turn to the armor of God. You see, the armor of God protects from head to toe. And it's both offensive and defensive. Now, what we're going to do... As we, as we go through this, is uh, each piece of armor, Paul had in mind a piece from like a, a Roman legionary, like a, a Roman soldier. And each one of them will have a short description and stuff up there with some scriptures. I may not get to all of that. Sorry, I'm going to do my best. Um, but there are some things that I just really want to key in on. The first thing that he says, and we'll just read the verses uh, 14 through 17 in total right here. 
It says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Just pause there for a minute. How many circumstances did you have this week in which you looked at it through the lens of faith? In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to keep, or sorry, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. So he starts with the belt of truth. Why is truth so important? Well, uh, one Holocaust survivor turned philosopher put it this way. The ideal subject for, totalitar for totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom true and false no longer exists. So when you can't definitively say this is true and this is false, you've basically just kicked wide the door open to be ruled by Satan. This is why truth is so important. In fact, some would argue that maybe the belt of truth is one of the most important pieces of the armor because the belt of truth, it's a, it's a leather apron that goes apart around the lower part of your body and it pulls together your breastplate of righteousness. It has a holster for your sword. It protects your inner part of your thighs and your legs. It's not just a little belt like this. It's a belt that covers. It's a belt that holds together. Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, why do we have this piece of armor? Well, first and foremost, Satan's primary weapon, like we've already said, is deceit. When he lies, it's out of his own character, right? Consider it this way. Why do you lie? This is participation time. Why do you lie? We've got a bunch of liars in here. Um, <laughs> Shane. Why else? Stay out, of Stay out of trouble. Isn't it hilarious that we lie to protect. But the belt of truth is for the Christian this idea that we tell the truth to protect. Is it loving for me to allow you to persist living in a lie? No. It's actually the opposite of love. Now, if we want to define love in cultural terms, this is like the most offensive piece of the armor. Because you're holding out reality and you're saying, your life doesn't match with reality. That's truth. Ephesians 4.15 says you're to speak the truth in love. But then he goes on to say that you are growing up into him. 
meaning it's going to be a growing process. Like, how many times have I not spoken the truth in love? Like, just me, not you guys. Like, just all look at me for a second. How many times have I failed to speak the truth in love? Like, often. A lot. But there are times when I've done it in love. And the results are incredible. Think of compound interest, right? Starting at 18 and you start putting away five bucks a day or whatever, it's going to compound over time until it has a larger impact. So I would just say, how do you use this piece of armor? Know the truth about God and the truth about yourself. Because the best lies are mostly true. Second, Paul moves on to the breastplate of righteousness. He reminded the readers of of Corinthians in, in chapter 1, verse 30, he says this, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and peace. So the breastplate of righteousness is is built of iron and bronze. It was scaled. It was held together with leather, and it basically protected the abdomen and the shoulders. One interesting note is that there was nothing on the backside of this. It covered only the front side of an individual. Because how many people walk into war like this? Like, (laughs) it's just not normal. But we'll get to the idea of how your back is protected in just a minute. I would say, why do we have the breastplate of righteousness? Maybe two two thoughts here. Righteousness can be seen here as objective, which means our standing before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Meaning, he made Jesus to be sin for us on the cross that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the objective standing before God. I am righteous before him. Can I just ask you, do you feel righteous before God? Because in Christ you are. The second thing is righteousness as subjective. And I would just say this, this is experiential holiness. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? It means just this, real basic, real simple. It's this idea that I am giving God my yes with obedience. It means that I trust his righteousness, and that's actually what helps me to grow in mine. Why? Because I'm not having an inordinate focus on my own failures, on my own unrighteousness. I'm not, woe is me, navel-gazing, stuck in a hole behind everything. I'm actually looking forward and above to who my king is. And then he talks about shoes, meaning the gospel of peace. In Romans 5.1, he says that you are justified, that means made right, by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these shoes were made with like little hobnails. Um, best way to describe that would be like, think of cleats, Okay. If, if I gave a football player these shoes and said, go play a game of football, and it's a muddy night, and he's going to try to make a cut to, to dodge a defender, what do you think is going to happen? Aside from a torn growing and a chest that's going to hurt from getting tagged by the tackler. He's going to be done for. 
right? And so these, these shoes had cleats on them so that you could advance and you could hold ground, okay? It wasn't just a fashion statement. And so you're like, well, how, how is the gospel that for us? Well, first of all, I'd say here's, here's why we have it. Peace, peace with God because of the gospel is something that we proclaim. You know, in Mark chapter uh, 16, verse 15, which is Mark's version of uh, the Great Commission, he says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Why? Because there's a possibility for you to have peace with God. And, and not all of us here have had the privilege of, been with, of being with someone when they're drawing their dying breath. Um, I've been there. I've been in a hospital room with a 16-year-old girl as she was passing. And I remember she sends everybody out, and she looks at me, and she's weeping. And this is a girl who I would have said, man, she's strong in Christ. And she's weeping, and she says to me, I'm terrified. I'm terrified of what comes next. And I opened to Romans chapter 5, and I read these verses. And we stepped on the throat of Satan together with the authority that is ours in Christ. And she entered into eternity fully assured because of the peace that the gospel brings. I think there's the objective state of peace that we have, but also just when we have peace, how much more ready am I for attacks? Think of it this way. If you're a mom and you don't get sleep and you try to parent, how does that go? It's rough, right? Like you can do it one night, maybe two, but like if, if you're trying to parent on a deficit of sleep, you lack peace, hence you lack grace, you lack mercy. There's all sorts of stuff that comes up as a result. So the gospel of peace gives us a preparedness for Satan's attacks. Next, he moves to the shield of faith. To the readers of 1 Peter, um, these words were written, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are experienced, are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So the shield of faith to me is one of the most interesting. It's about a four foot by two foot device. Um, and it was made of, uh, it was, it was made of, of leather and wood and metal um, rounded about. So you could, you could put it on the ground and then stand behind it like this, right? But the whole goal was never you by yourself. It was you would advance and take ground if, if like, you know, Cody and Matt and John there would, like, come with me and we'd have our shields, right? And so two of us would be facing forward and then two behind and that shield would have my back. Have you ever heard that phrase? I got your back. Think of it that way. That when I'm linked up in community with other believers who are going to help me in this fight of spiritual warfare, I've got someone who has my back. And, and why do we do that? It says because Satan is lobbing flaming arrows, accusation, condemnation, things like this. 
And you're like, uh, flaming arrows? Yeah, because in ancient times, if you dipped a, an arrow in tar and pitch, and then you launched it into a village or a neighborhood that had straw roof or, uh, or a bunch of dry wood, getting, it, it could start a flame, and then the hope would be that you burn people up. And so you have this shield then that has like leather and it's, it's, uh, it can extinguish a dart. So a, a dart hits it or an arrow hits it and it sticks into it because it's wood and leather. And then the dart is what? Extinguished. And the whole purpose for which it was sent flying at you is mitigated. It's awesome. In fact, um, in, in Rome's own civil war in 48 BC, the Battle of uh, Dyrrhachium, uh, Sceva, one of the warriors, having used his shield, right, a four-foot-by-two-foot thing, um, at the end of the war, plucked out no less than 200 arrows. Think about that. 200 times flaming arrows had been sent his direction, and they were stuck into the shield. So the shield of faith is critical. You see, the communal nature of this piece of armor is huge. And you're like, well, faith, right? Like just faith, faith. No, it, faith doesn't matter unless it's in something, right? So it's the object of your faith that matters. It's God <clears throat> and his word brought to bear on us by his spirit when the flaming darts come. So maybe here's a good question. What are some fiery darts? Toss them out there. What are some fiery darts? Fear of man. What else? You're no good. What? Criticism. Criticism. Yeah. You see, Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I hope you're seeing that God's word is so central. To this fight that we're in. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith is something we actively do. It's not something we just passively get. You have to put into practice the object of your faith. I have faith in that chair that is going to hold me until I sit down. And then my faith is realized. It's the same way with the shield of faith. You need others. Truth to life. You need others. You can't go it alone. It's kind of a totally American concept to say, I've got this on my own. It doesn't work so well. And then he moves on to the helmet of salvation. You see, the iron helmet was forged of one piece. And to put on the helmet, therefore, means that you live in the knowledge and assurance of your salvation. Think Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 8.31-39, through 39, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Or Hebrews 13.5 and 6, that he'll never leave or forsake us. You see, the principal battleground in spiritual warfare is in the mind. Any basketball coach, any coach of any sport will tell you the greatest battle happens between your ears. It's what's going on in your mind. Here, strongholds develop. 
A stronghold is just a pattern of thinking that cripples our ability to obey God and instead invites guilt and shame and condemnation on a regular basis. See 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5 to really get a flavor for what this is all about. One author says it this way. Satan knows he can gain a major strategical advantage over us if he can sow the seeds of doubt in our minds concerning our relationship with God. If he can get you to doubt, yeah, God really doesn't love you. He's like one foot in the door. It's all he needs. And so here's my encouragement. Our bad days don't define us. And our good days don't promote us. We are his. How comforting is that? To know that my failure doesn't define me. It is something that needs addressed. It is something I must come to. But I can't just skate past it. I can't just then take it on as though it defines me. We are his. And finally, he gets to the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, this was a shorter sword. There was a different Greek word used for sword that communicated like a long, um, you know, 18-inch, two-foot type of sword. This one was more like 12 to 14 inches, and it was used in close combat. Think of the imagery there. Satan is firing darts from far away, but he's up close in hand-to-hand combat. And God gives us tools for both. And you're saying, well, what, what's the tool here? How does this work? The word is the sword. It is of the Spirit in the sense that it's the Holy Spirit who gives power both to the written and spoken Word of God. One minister of the gospel says it this way, All Word and no Spirit, we dry up. All Spirit and no Word, and we blow up. Word and Spirit, we grow up. So if you think that just memorizing scripture is going to be your battle and defense without ever actually entreating the Holy Spirit to make it come alive in you to give it the power and the fruit necessary, you're running a fool's errand. Or if you think that being in the Spirit and controlled by him only with no knowledge of the scriptures is somehow going to get you through spiritual warfare, again, you're wasting your time. It's the combination of those two that brings the power that is so prevalent for the believing person. See, there's two different words for word (laughs) in in the New Testament. There's logos and rhema. Logos is the general collective body of truth. It's the word that refers to Jesus in John chapter 1. It's this idea of Ephesians 4.21, the truth in Jesus, in the logos. It's a collective body of truth. Everything that God was talking about in all the scriptures is fulfilled in the word Jesus. But then there's rhema. And that's a specific word. That's an individual utterance. It's a declaration. It's the application of Scripture specifically. You're like, well, how does, that, how does that work? What's that look like? Think of Jesus in his temptation. Jesus goes into the desert, again, led by the Spirit. And in the Spirit, he engages in this spiritual battle. And every time Satan throws an accusation at him by taking something mostly true, but a little bit of a lie, and twisting the Word of God, how does Jesus respond? 
with the rhema. He responds with a specific word for Satan in that moment. This is one of the reasons why you have that bookmark there in your hands, because it's got a bunch of rhemas there that you might find useful, specific words. And you're thinking, well, what's the deal with the individual utterance or declaration? I want to say this very clear. Satan can't read your mind. Okay? So when it comes to spiritual warfare, it's important to declare out loud what you intend to do to the enemy. How do you think it would have worked when Satan was accusing and attacking Jesus in the desert if Jesus just would have been like, mm-hmm, and then turned and walked away? And in his mind, he recited, you know, I shouldn't live by anything but the word of God. He didn't say it out loud, but he just quietly kept it in his heart. The point is that you utter it, that you declare it, that you speak it out loud. Have you ever heard the phrase, say a lie out loud and it loses its power? Right? In the same way, the Spirit and the Word come together in a powerful way when you testify to its power and authority in your life. Remember Revelation 12? In Revelation 12, there was this picture of how Satan and the demons had been cast down. But look what it says in verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And right here. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their own lives unto death. So how do you conquer Satan? Using word and spirit, you testify. You're like, well, why in the world do we require testimony here at Northfield when you get baptized? Right here. (laughs) Because it's another way to kill Satan, to crush him, to stop his advances in our church because you are declaring that the word of God is true and active and living and powerful specifically for you in your circumstance and your world. Now, take that collectively and say, what does that look like for us as a church? It's huge. It's just huge. One last note, and then I'll wrap up. As Paul wraps up in verses 18 through 20, he uses the word all like four times. All times in the spirit, all prayer and supplication, all perseverance, all the saints. What Paul is getting at is praying. You really could have started this with that concept at the beginning. Put on your belt of truth, praying. Take up the sword of the spirit, praying. Hold the shield of faith, praying. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, praying. Why? Because again, that's a demonstration of the power, the authority, and the relationship that we have with God. See, the outcome of the battle that we're called to fight depends not on our doing things our way, but on our doing things God's way. He's already declared the victory. How would you like the battles to go until the war is done? It's critical then that you have a functional, up-to-date, in-touch relationship with the Lord. There's more I could say, but I've run out of time. Let me just go ahead and pray for us. If you'd like to stay after and have more conversation uh, or prayer, there'll be some elders, myself, up here as well. Um, This is a huge topic, and I'm sorry for how long it takes to unpack all of it. 
uh, but my prayer is that it was helpful and a blessing to you. So Father, thank you for who you are and what you do. Thank you that you are merciful, that you are life-giving, that you um, are powerful. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have given us an understanding of the enemy and then the tools to continue to defeat him as he tries to drag us back into the darkness from which we've been delivered. Thank you that the victory is yours, the glory is yours, the honor is yours. Thank you that we get to participate. Amen.